uh, found this in uh, Gunner Room. Uh, uh, Gunner What is it? Well, it's, um... It's green. Bridge to all debts. Time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. I'm Steve Morris, and I feel like I could transform into another body, which would give me new senses and maybe new experiences that I've never had before as we discuss this episode, Scott. Well, as long as you're not turning into a dodecahedron, I think you'd be okay <laughs> with that, Steve, because we are doing our deep dive on one of my favorite episodes, and it's an episode that is not generally... Uh, sort of listed in top fives or maybe even top tens. But this is an episode that I've gone back to over and over again, just because it's so very entertaining. At least I think so. This is By Any Other Name. And joining us for a deep dive of this, what I think is a Star Trek classic, is a true Trexpert. I mean, literally, he is a Trexpert because he is the co-host with Darren Doctorman, of the award-winning Inglorious Trexperts podcast, which is a must-listen-to Star Trek podcast. If you're not listening to Inglorious Trexperts, you are truly missing out. He is also the author and co-author of oral histories of great TV shows and film series like Star Trek on the 50-Year Mission, the two-volume series that's co-authored by Ed Gross. Also, So Say We All, Oral History of Battlestar Galactica, Nobody does it better. A terrific oral history on James Bond, Secrets of the Force, oral history on uh, Star Wars. And Mark, what is the name of your oral history on Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Slayers and Vampires, I believe. Slayers and Vampires. In addition to all of that work, Mark Altman is the showrunner for the CW's Pandora. He has been a producer and writer of of so many TV shows like The Librarians. And for everyone listening, I'm sure you know the film Free Enterprise, which is, I think, one of the very best Star Trek movies of all time. And he is the producer and writer of that. We are so excited and honored to be joined by my very, very good friend, Mark A. Altman. Welcome, Mark Altman. Are we out of time now? Are we done? <laughs> no. I, that's it. Thank you very much for coming. This is, we'll see you on another episode. I, I got my green drink right here. You can't tell. This is no video, but I'm, I'm, I got my green drink. And uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on the, on the show. Uh, I, I used to read the Enterprise Incidents, uh, James Van Heist's fanzine as a kid. I used to love that magazine. So it's good to be on an Enterprise Incidents podcast now. Well, this and, is this is nothing like that fanzine, but we did take our name as a homage to those old uh, those old Star Trek fanzines. Uh, and uh, it, it's, you know, Mark, I, I want to know, like, what is it about by any other name? Like, how do you feel about it? How have you felt about it over the years? Yeah, you know, I, I think, Scott, you kind of nailed it at the beginning. You know, I remember in the old Best of Trek collections, they used to always do these lists. You know, best Star Trek episodes, worst Star Trek episodes. And the best were usually on point. But, you know, the worst was always like, it was put stuff like Spectre and the Gun, the Savage Curtain, which were totally wrong to be in the worst episodes. Um, but by any other name was, you know, always ignored. You know, never best, never worst, you know, never played in any reindeer games. But it, it's that super fun, B-plus, solid, like, it's what makes the second season of the original Star Trek the greatest season in the history of Star Trek. Um, you know, it just, you know, there are masterpieces in that season and there are very few clunkers. And there's a lot of episodes like by any other name, which are just like solidly entertaining, cool sci-fi premise, 
really fun, great guest stars. And so, I, I mean, I wouldn't extol it like, you know, you, like where you're like, oh, it's one of the best episodes of all time. But <laughs> it, it's it's a really good, it's a really good, fun episode and a good palate cleanser after, you know, Patterns of Force the previous week. What what do, what about you, Steve? How do you feel about Biting of Your Name? I always like it. I agree with both of you. I think it's, I don't think it's, it doesn't go up in my top favorite episodes of all time, but I've always enjoyed it. It has some great scenes, including what I will say is one of the most beloved little fun moments of any episode of Star Trek. So no, I totally like this episode. Yeah, Mark, I want to ask that, especially because, you know, you've written so much about Star Trek going back into the 80s, my goodness. Um, but where was Star Trek by the time, by any other name, uh, when this episode was produced later in the second season? Because I feel like, you know, and I said this many times, and you and I have talked about this on your show, on Glorious Trexperts, Mark, about how, uh, in addition to being the greatest season of Star Trek ever produced in the last, you know, 56 years, that the first part of the second season, I always said, was like Star Trek was really at its peak. It was hitting its stride. But then Gene Kuhn left. And then, so where are we now in terms of the quality of the latter part of season two? Yeah, I still think it's pretty solid. I mean, you know, Gene was very much, Kuhn was very much involved in the development of this episode. Yep. You know, so it's, so you, you see Gene's fingerprints on it. You certainly see Dorothy. I mean, she gets a co-writing credit with Jerome Bixby. She did most of the heavy lifting. And, you know, even John Meredith Lucas, who came in to replace uh, Gene Kuhn, you know, did some work on the episode. So you're, you're sort of seeing the passing of the baton from Gene Kuhn to John Meredith Lucas. And while John Meredith Lucas certainly was no Gene Kuhn, when you look at episodes like Ultimate Computer and you look at the, um, you know, sort of um, – the mishmash of red circuses uh, and everything, you know, there's some really solid episodes and, you know, I don't blame Omega glory on, on either of those guys. That's pure Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. You know, yeah, so yeah. Um, it, it's a really, you know, and going into assignment earth, I mean, and you know, you have still ultimate computer to come. I, I mean, it's great. So yeah, you know, we're, we're the, the end of Gene Kuhn being a part of star Trek is really felt is, you know, in third season, you know, I think second season, you know, sticks the landing pretty much. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, uh, you know, I, even Omega Gory, you know, an episode that is that is widely panned, I, I still think it has its merits for no other reason because I learned the Constitution because from Captain Kirk. But we'll get into that, you know, uh, when we cover that on our deep dive. But so by any will other you means, recite in E Plubnista? If you recite E Plubnista, I will listen. I I, <laughs> I I recited when I was in fifth grade. I recited the Constitution. Not just that I recite the Constitution, but I recited it like Captain Kirk in front of my class. I'll tell that story. But this story, by any other name, was directed by Stalwart, Mark Daniels, one of the two directors to direct the most episodes of Star Trek, 14 in total. Like you said, Mark, the teleplay was written by Jerome Bixby. This was his second Star Trek teleplay after Mirror, Mirror, which is an absolute classic, uh, co-written by the wonderful Dorothy D.C. Fontana, and uh, Bixby wrote his story outline dated April 27th, 1967, when Gene Kuhn was still very, very much a part of the show. So yes, he definitely did have his hands on this. He wrote a second draft teleplay dated September 9th, did a script polish on October 9th, and then 
Dorothy Fontana did a complete rewrite, a final draft teleplay dated October 31st. Then she did her own script polish, revised final draft teleplay dated November 7th. So by any other name was uh, aired for the very first time on February 23rd, 1968. It was the 51st episode to air, but it was also the 51st episode to be produced. That is if you, of course, include The Cage. It was produced on schedule in six days between November 10th and November 17th. The total cost of this episode came in at $178,428, which was about $4,000 under budget. And for the first time in a while, a partial score was composed by Fred Steiner. That partial score was recorded on December 22nd, 1967. And also on that date, Fred Steiner composed the flag music for the Omega Glory. So uh, uh, there's a lot going on here for the Omega Glory. So cinematographer Jerry Finnerman, who just, I mean, his work on the original series, you know, we... He's we've sung his praises so many times on Enterprise Incidents. I know you and Dyron have done the same on uh, on Inglorious Trexperts, Mark. But this episode was shot by Keith Smith because Finnerman was wasn't feeling that great. So this is the one and only episode of Star Trek uh, where Keith Smith was the cinematographer. Um, that's interesting. I didn't know that because thinking about it now, you can tell. You can tell that Finnerman's not there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, would you like to know some of the things going on in the world while they were filming this episode? Yes, let's hear it. Well, I would like to focus on probably one of the most important things going on in the entire 60s and just do all our current events on that. And that is, of course, the Vietnam War, which has been a constant presence throughout the shooting of Star Trek. On, uh, As you said, it was filmed from uh, November 10th through the 17th, 1967, on the 11th. General William Westmoreland had a press conference in which he told the reporters that the North Vietnamese forces had dropped from 299,000 to 242,000 due to heavy casualties. This is obviously very good news for the war, except that it wasn't true because the reason that the numbers dropped was not because of casualties, but because they changed their method of counting. So they actually changed the categories. And so the numbers hadn't dropped at all. In fact, later on, reports showed that the numbers were in fact around 600,000, more than twice as much as the uh, general commanding the army said that it was. On the 15th, the U.S. ambassador to Vietnam uh, Ellsworth Bunker came to Lyndon Johnson to say things are going really well in Vietnam. And what I don't know if you remember last week we were talking about that Johnson had called together some of his best foreign advisors and said, hey, how can I get more of America on board? And they said, be optimistic, give optimistic results. And so on the 17th, based on the reports from General Westmoreland, based on the information he got from ambassador, the ambassador to Vietnam, LBJ holds a press conference and says things are going really, really well. And that was a big success politically. His numbers went up in the polls. Everyone was really happy. And this is how we get to really bad stuff. And I just want, again, this is not a political show. We don't go into politics. But last year we had the withdrawal from Afghanistan where there were all these predictions of how well things were going to go. And I think whether whatever side of the political fence you're on, you know that things did not go well. And that is exactly how you get there. Exactly what was happening in Vietnam, false information, trying to please a certain political perspective leads to 
disaster. And that is what was happening when this episode was being filmed. Well, well, one one good thing that did happen during this week while they were filming by any other name is on November 10th, on November 10th, the Star Trek episode Metamorphosis aired for uh, the very first time. And both you guys know how much here I... Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> yes, Mark. I uh, had to just throw that in there. A little bit of a bright spot that uh, that Metamorphosis aired when, when this episode started filming. But that uh, that's that bit of Star Trek history that happened during the week that this episode was filmed. Well, man, maybe Nancy have Hedford should have given the Vietnam statistics that week, being <laughs> the right. great diplomat that she was. She's I don't think she would have lied about the statistics. She seems to be the kind that gives you the plain unvarnished truth. Props to Eleanor Donahue. Yes. <laughs> uh, would you like to get into the show? Let's do it. So we start off in the teaser in this beautiful green lush looking planet. And there was a distress call. We have no life forms. We're looking around trying to figure it out. And then suddenly. Captain, I'm getting a reading now. Two human forms at bearing 300 Mark 7. Confirmed. And those two figures are Rojan and Kalinda. Rojan played by Warren Stevens, who is best known on film for playing Lieutenant Doc Ostro on Forbidden Planet, a movie that was very, very, very much uh, a big influence on Roddenberry's idea for Star Trek. On TV, he was seen in the in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, The Outer Limits, uh, an episode that I really loved, The Keeper of the Purple Twilight, also Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Bonanza, and Mission Impossible, and Kalinda, played by Barbara Boucher, who on Ooh. film- Yes, Barbara Boucher uh, played on film in in Harm's Way Casino Royale, where she played what, Mark? Miss Moneypenny. Correct. She was. I, I interviewed her for my James Bond book, and you know, it's like we talked. To, you know, of course, when I finished talking about Bond, we had to talk about Star Trek because uh, she is in my top five uh, uh, Star Trek uh, women, uh, obviously. Uh, who was? Who that. were the other four? <laughs> Sher- Sherry Jackson. Um, uh, the, uh, from Dagger of the Mind. Um, oh my God, I'm losing. I'm getting old oh, now. Uh, Mar- uh, Mariana Hill. Mariana Hill and uh, Tanya Barrows from Shoreleaf. Oh, they. Oh, yeah. And of absolutely. course, Barbara Boucher from. Uh, by any from, other name. From, from by any other name, who was you know. She was also in movies like Sweet Charity and Gangs of New York. Uh, but in 1970, she moved to Italy, where she became a very big star there. Uh, and she was also on TV in The Virginian, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Man from Uncle. So, so on this first day that they were filming, this is where they were on the planet set for Stage 10. And this was the very first Stage 10 planet set to feature a lake designed by Walter Matt Jeffries. And uh, during the filming of this bit uh, on the planet, the lake actually sprung a leak onto the storage area below. So I guess, uh, uh, you know, even in the 23rd century, leaks do happen. But Mark, I want to ask you, you know, this was an episode that for the very beginning, we see some of the revised visual effects for for the remaster that came out in 2007. What did you think of the revised uh, visual effects for these episodes. Well, you know, I, I, look, I, I I think that the the Kudas and Dave Rossi um, did the, a yeoman's job with the resources that they had. I'm a big fan of the the matte paintings, but you know, also, you know, if you look at the difference between the Star Trek the Motion Picture Director's Edition from the early 2000s and 
what we saw this week at the premiere. Yeah. It's extraordinary how technology has allowed. I mean, it, it, it basically you went from the minor leagues to the major leagues. Yeah. Like, it, it, the original director's edition, in, in my mind, did not supplant the theatrical version. It was a really great attempt. But the new version uh, with the new sound mix and, and the, the effects where they are now, it's 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 the definitive version of Star Trek motion picture. It's a it's a masterpiece. Right. But, Absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, I think that unfortunately, Mike and, and, and Dave, they were handicapped. They had one hand behind their back, not only because of the technology, but the money. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the effects are very uneven when they are good. They're very good. And when they're not, they're not. And so I think by any other name is not one of the episodes you would point to that really suffered from um, the effects in, uh, of the era in any way. So um, and as you said, you know, I think of anything, the fact that they're shooting on the planet set, whereas that's had Paramount not cut the budget of the show, you would have been on location for that. That, oh, that, absolutely. that, that demanded a, a location shoot. And, you know, certainly Keith Smith is the DP didn't do it any favors uh, in terms of making it look like anything but what it was a set. But, you know, obviously the gaffer kept the Jerry Finnerman like colors, which helps, um, you know, and so it's it, it, it's good, but it's not great. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. but fortunately, Warren Stevens and, and, and Barbara Boucher are fascinating and interesting and a great way into the episode. And um uh, and, and obviously we'll see a lot more of that planet be, before it sort of becomes a bottle show in the third, fourth and fifth acts. Yeah. Yeah. No, listen, I, I, I just want to second your, your assessment of Star Trek, the motion picture, the director's edition, uh, uh that is an absolute must see and it's streaming now on Paramount plus. So for everyone who's been waiting these 21 years for that director's edition, uh, you're going to get a whole lot more than what you saw back in 2001. You're going to get the true definitive version of Star Trek, the motion picture. And now it is there and it's going to be a fathom event at the end of May. And then it's going to come out on Blu-ray in September. And, uh, uh, it's magical, physical, physical representation of that movie is what I want. So can't yep. wait for that. Moving on to, uh, <laughs> by any other name. Well, mo- moving on, Kirk introduces himself, asks about the distress call and Rojan says it's very kind of you to respond so quickly captain now you will surrender your ship to me and already kirk is like oh you have a very strange sense of humor and as he goes to reach for his phaser what happens rojan hits a little button and all of them are frozen and and i just want to point out like you're directing a show you're acting in a moment and that you have this decision of okay what does exactly mean to be frozen and in this case they made the decision that everything is frozen but you can move your eyes around and so you see kirk kind of looking from his frozen body which i think ends up looking kind of silly well there is a reason for that steve and i'm glad you brought that up because certainly DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy and uh, the other actors who were frozen, they were absolutely completely frozen. The reason that Shatner was moving around his eyes was because while they were filming, they Shatner felt that it was important that that the audience knew that he was aware of what was happening, uh, of especially when Rojan says what he's about to say. And that is why Shatner justified moving his eyes around, even though everybody else, you know, listened to the director freeze completely. Um, but Chatner, you know, moved his eyes around to, to convey certainly the look of concern uh, that uh, you humans uh, have faced the end of your existence as you have known it. Look, this is another example of how great 
the teasers were on the original show, yep. how it would pull you in. And of course, this was an era where there are three channels and you could easily change channels and watch something else if you weren't, you know, brought in, you know, you weren't lured in. And a Star Trek, the original series, did a better job than any show of capturing the audience in those teasers. It's like in Arena, Cestus 3, it's been destroyed, you yep. know. Oh, yeah. um, and this is another great Star Trek teaser. And, you know, no matter, even if you like the other shows better, try watching Next Gen or Enterprise or any show. They do not know how to do a teaser that pulls you in. It, it, it's it's the equivalent of the old cliffhangers in a way on the serials where they want to get you back in the theater next week. They want to get you to stick through the commercials. And uh, it's very, there's an art to writing a teaser. And boy, they really nailed it week to week. You're right. You're absolutely right. Even a second tier episode like this, which is a, a phrase that you've uh, talked about elsewhere, describing Bay and the other name, Mark, uh, a second tier episode like this. And the teaser still rocks. And we come back from in act one and they take away their communicators and they release them from the paralysis after a little explanation of how this works. And of course, Spock, as always, is not upset. He's interested in the technology. Interesting. A neural field. Yes. Radiating from a central projector. Whatever that means, that's going to become important later on. Uh, and we hear a little bit more uh, because Kirk asks, what do you want? He says, your ship. It will serve us well in the long voyage that it is to come. Voyage where? <laughs> your neighboring galaxy, which you call Andromeda. And what we find out is that they were sent here to from Andromeda to conquer parts of this galaxy because there's lots of radiation or something like that in Andromeda. And now they're going to fly back to give this message. And Kirk, I love his line. He says, I'm sorry, this galaxy is already occupied. Captain, you think you are unconquerable and your ship impregnable. But while we've talked, the capture has already begun. So on the bridge of the Enterprise, we see that there's already chaos happening and there's a call for red alert. And then we see we see three of the Kelvins, uh, starting with Hanar, who freezes everyone on the bridge. And Hanar, if he looks familiar, he should, especially to Star Trek fans, because he's played by Stuart Moss, who played, uh, uh, you know, he was in the Naked Time playing. What was his name, Mark? In the Naked Time, he was, uh, you know, um, uh a guy in the naked time. Yeah, he was the guy. He was uh, a Joey Tormolin. Thank you. Oh, Joey yeah. There, there, you, there you go. You know, and then Drea uh, is down in engineering, uh, uh, played by Leslie Dalton. And then uh, Tamar, played by Robert Fortier, who has a, a great scene later on in this episode. Uh, but, you know, this is where you hear bits of the new score uh, composed by uh, 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 Fred Steiner. And, and, I, and I'm glad that they composed a new score for this because they were starting to reuse the, the others for stock uh, music a little too much and they captured the enterprise pretty darn easily and they and Haynar reports down to rojan that they've got the ship there's no point in capturing my ship even at maximum warp the enterprise couldn't get to the andromeda galaxy for thousands of years and this is when we find out that again someone will be able to modify the ship to go a lot faster and you know what i always think like after the changeling can do it you know after nomad can do it or in this it's like well why didn't they keep this technology you know maybe they did I don't know. We never hear them going warp 11 later on. Maybe they used part of this technology when they refit the Enterprise 
for Star Trek The Motion Picture, and because they were having uh, problems hmm. modifying the Enterprise engines, you know, with this new technology, maybe that's why the Enterprise went into a wormhole uh, when they went to warp speed for the first time. Mark, is that a stretch? <laughs> I, I think it sounds completely logical, Scott. <laughs> well, I, 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 it's very, very possible. But um, I have to say that uh, it, it's very credible that they take over the Enterprise because they have this incredible technology that. Um, Jerome Bixby came up with, and obviously Dorothy finessed with the decahedrons. Um, but it, it's very redolent of iMud, you know? Sure. And we we kind of see. So, this is you, you, one thing that Dorothy was critical of, of Gene from. And then, you know, Gene talks about how, you know, tired he was at that point, Gene Kuhn, um, that you do see sort of certain tropes repeating themselves. Yep. And sort of them taking over the Enterprise is similar to things we've seen before, except the idea that they can shrink them into these cubes is a really neat spin on it well one of the things that actually made this so great is back when we were they were doing i mud and and you know gene coon was like really uh like how the heck are we going to convince the audience that these these androids put the entire crew of the enterprise down on the planet and it was actually David Gerald's idea to just have a scene where, you know, one of the androids throws Scotty and says, it's the last one, Lord Mud. And in this episode, they were trying to, again, come up with a another concept where like, you know, a half dozen Kelvins take over the Enterprise of more than 428 people. And uh, it was this great idea to come up with this little device on the belt that freezes everybody. And, and, and it was like, what a great way to solve that problem and to make it like, OK, problem solved. Yeah, and we see it again in Wink of an Eye later as well, which you'll talk about in a year. But uh, it, 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 but it's it's well done, and visually, more importantly, TV is a visual medium. It's visually captivating. Absolutely. And the other piece of information we find out is that this is actually they they cut it down from thousands of years to three hundred years, but still, it's going to take multiple generations to get back to the Andromeda galaxy. What happened to your ship? There is an energy barrier at the rim of your galaxy. Yes, I know. We've been there. I love when they actually consciously make references to other episodes. They did it so rarely in the original series. Uh, continuity was not, uh, you know, it was, it was not a serialized show. And they could, that's why they showed episodes out of order from the way they were produced. But to have this, like, you know, this line, yes, I know we've been there, is, you know, of course they've been there. They were there in you know the second pilot where no man has gone before. But uh, and and one thing uh, you know even though they didn't do a lot of continuity, one thing that we've really been establishing mark on Enterprise incidents is that if you watch the show in production order, uh, it, the the themes that are established earlier in the show and and moments and motivations and character evolutions actually work if you do look at the original series as if it was if it was a serialized show but in this case they actually do make the reference to the the energy barrier which i think is really cool well scott you tapped into something i think that's really really important this idea and it's hard for people to understand now in the age of serialized serialized television that in a standalone show in the 60s because there's two two references to canon not mm -hmm. only the galactic barrier, there's also a reference to a taste of Armageddon later yep. when uh, Kurt, when Spock is, uses the mind meld to disable the guard. And it is was remarkable. And that is why when people dismiss 
what quote unquote older fans concerns about certain things that piss on Canon. <laughs> Canon is so important because it's so unique to the show and it's what created the tapestry of Star Trek. It was its cinema. It was the MCU before there was an MCU that everything tied together and there was a richness. And this is why people would write fanzines and write stories and, 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 and dress up as these characters because there was this world building that was going on. And so much of that was canon and it was so unique at the time. So when they refer to the galactic barrier and they just ignore it, you know, how serious would you take Star Trek if they just zoomed out of the galaxy and now suddenly there was no galactic barrier? You, you, it would say something about they don't take the show seriously. So why should I take the show seriously? That's a great point. And, and I love the fact that even something as subtle as those two references, that they, they, their universe is a cohesive universe, um, that it, they, they're they slowly establishing this canon. And they didn't have like research assistants and people, you know, who were tracking all this like they do now. You know, it, it, it was it was just something that they knew their show that they were working on. And Joan Pierce, who was doing the research and of the forest research would occasionally flag these things because people loved the show and it was great. And it was something that we all embraced. And uh, that's why, you know, these people who dismiss, well, who cares about Canon? You know, who cares about recasting? You know, it just, it's, it's like, I care. I care. Well, you know, you mentioned Joan Pierce, Mark and Joan Pierce, like, like when you, when you hear that line that uh, we'll, we'll make it to the Andromeda galaxy in less than 300 years, that was not a throwaway line that came back from DeForest research that if the enterprise traveled at like warp 14, which is like, you know, more than 8,000 times the speed of light, it would actually make it to the Andromeda galaxy in 280 years. And Roddenberry said like, you know, I know this may seem like a trivial thing, like what's the big deal, but this is really important to the credibility for Star Trek to be a plausible series. So so that's the kind of care and nurturing that the writers and producers really took. So I'm so glad you brought up the forest research because that was a crucial decision and a conscious decision when they came up with the intergalactic travel in less than 300 years. Yeah, I'm not sure people realize the role of the forest research. Basically, and again, this is a little inside baseball. In television, you send things out to a research company. Now, it's mostly to avoid lawsuits. It's less about the science then, it, it, you know, they, they can weigh in on on factual stuff, but it's more like, oh, you named your officer, um, you know, Steve Smith. And it's and there's a lawyer in, you know, Los Angeles named Steve Smith. So they want you to change your name so you can get what's called errors and omission insurance. So basically you can't be uh, sued. You know, they're basically clearing and saying th- there's nothing that will invite litigation. And as a result, you can get insurance in case you are sued that said everything was cleared. So, yes, you are getting the benefit of science. I think part of the fact is that DeForest and um, Joan love Star Trek so much. They often weighed in on things that a normal research company wouldn't, which right. elevated the show again because they cared. And, but it, it largely has to do with insurance, production insurance and litigation concerns and things like that. Spoken like a true Trek expert. <laughs> well, and I, I actually think that there is a direct connection between 
the care in terms of science and research when they're making the show and the number of scientists that were inspired by Star Trek to go into scientific fields. I think if they hadn't taken it so seriously, then, and it was just like, well, whatever we say, you know, like in Lost in Space, whatever it is, is whatever it is. That didn't inspire someone to go join NASA or to build rockets or to go into medicine or physics. No, I think the Harvey, Harvey Lynn being hired to advise on the cage from Rand says everything you need to know about Gene Roddenberry. On one hand, he hires a guy who's a futurist who can tell him, you know, what, you know, all this prescient stuff that he can build in the show to make it unlike any science fiction show um, you've ever seen. And at the same time, he's also his cousin, so he can pay <laughs> his cousin some money. That's everything you need to know about Gene. You know, he. <laughs> so Kirk is immediately, of course, trying to negotiate. First, he's going, why don't you just send a message? That's not going to work. And then he says, Roger. There's no reason to do this by force. Let's take your problem to the Federation. And he goes on to say that there's lots of planets in this galaxy. You can come here to, and colonize. It'll be fine. We do not colonize. We conquer. We rule. In other words, the galaxy isn't big enough for both of us. Spoken like a true Western movie star. <laughs> or, or, or Putin. <laughs> yeah, all right. Belinda, <laughs> take them to the holding area. We'll keep you and your party here, Captain. Your crew will undoubtedly wish to cooperate with us if they understand that you are hostages. Didn't work in Space Seed. No, that's true. <laughs> yeah, good, good point. We're alone with uh, Rojan and Hamar, and he already is having problems with this body thing. These shells in which we've encased ourselves, they have such heightened senses to feel, to hear, to smell. So by any other name is not... A deep episode, especially after the the massive tonal shift it takes when they get past the barrier and are really on their way to Andromeda. So it's not a heavy episode. It's not a deep episode. I feel like there could have been some depth here uh, with regards to what it means to be human. It's funny because long before green and recycling was in vogue, Gene Roddenberry was the greenest, most recycling writer of all time. I mean, he, there was, he never took a concept and didn't use it 900 times, right? Right. I mean, you know, so Star Trek, the motion picture is the changeling, right? Um, 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 Robots Return, which he created. For it. So this is interesting because uh, th there was a, a, his, the first script he ever sold to Hollywood in 1956 for the uh, Chevron Hall of, uh, of Stars was a script called The, the um, Secret Agent of 117, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that was a very similar premise to this in that aliens had come to Earth and suddenly were starting to observe the uh, absorb the traits of Earth people. And then you kind of see some of this in Assignment Earth, his uh, pilot that became the episode uh, of, of, of um, Star Trek. And then, of course, he did a novel which was never published called Report from Earth, which was a very similar concept as well. But, you know, clearly, I think when um, Bixby pitched he made Roddenberry probably mentioned something about this idea, this nugget of an idea he had in this old story of his, um, because it's very similar in that. In that interesting. Story. Very, very interesting. One other thing about the Kelvins to note is that when we first see the Kelvins in the first act and the second act, we see that they are very pale white. The makeup mm. is very pale white. And then gradually, especially after they get through the barrier and they start to uh, uh, come up with the, you know, when they come up with a plan to turn them, you know, more human, we see the color of their skin become more flesh-like. Become I never noticed more, that. 
Yeah, yeah. If you watch like the first two acts, you see that they're really pale. And by the by the fourth act, you see that Roja and Kalinda and and Hanar they're they're all they're all like normal flesh colored because they become more human. And Mark, it's so subtle, it's so subtle that it made me think of another reference to where no man has gone before. When we see the ravages of the powers take on Gary Mitchell when the when his hair uh, becomes slowly becomes more gray because mm. because of the 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 Im- impact that that power is having on his body and then we see gradually uh, the impact that humanity is having on the bodies of the Kelvins. That is a very interesting thought. Um, we're in our little jail cell and sort of rocks and we and the first thing we do is examine the bars and they're made out of some material that maybe our phasers can't even get through. And then uh, we're with a yeoman, a female yeoman, who says, "Captain, what do they want from us? What kind of people are they?" Question, Julie Cobb. Yeah, yeah. Julie Cobb plays yeoman Leslie Thompson, who made her TV acting debut on this episode of Star Trek. And her father is veteran actor Lee J. Cobb from oh. On the Waterfront and The Exorcist. Uh, after Star Trek, uh, Julie Cobb was seen in The Brady Bunch, Salem's Lot, and then many episodes of Charles in Charge, a Magna PI, and Growing Pains. And also with Yeoman Thompson is Lieutenant Shea, the security guard played by Carl Bird, who was on TV's I Dream a Genie, Gomer Pyle, USMC, the, the show that was actually clobbering Star Trek in the ratings in the second season. Uh, also, Mission Impossible and Different Strokes. Now I'm just picturing what, where would we put Lee J. Cobb if we were going to cast him in an episode of Star Trek? And the obvious one is the one that we just did, which is he would be perfect in a piece of the action. He also would have been perfect as the Gorg, uh, uh, the the, uh, uh, the 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 oh the Gorgon and uh, and the children shall leave. Yeah, do that. To, that's well, a waste yeah. of his talent. I mean, maybe like a Commodore, someone with some gravitas, but but not the Gorgon. You're gonna put him in feathers. Come well, on. well, you know what? Actually, what I mean, it's better than who they got. I mean, you know, uh, Melvin uh, Belli yeah. was awful in that episode. <laughs> well, look, anyone you could have put freaking Lee Strasberg in it, it would have been awful. <laughs> True, 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 true. <laughs> now I'm picturing all of these people playing that part. It's, uh, yes, fascinating stuff. And then Kirk comes up with a plan that Spock actually should have come up with. But yes. maybe maybe uh, Shatner was looking at the script and said, uh, you know, Leonard has too many lines. I'm going to take this line back. On a mini R7, you were able to trick the guard by a Vulcan mind bro. This is the reference to A Taste of Armageddon that you were referring to, Mark. As I recall, Captain. I led him to believe we had escaped. Do you think you can do it again? So I think this is a perfect example of uh, this expression that I think I've said before, which is hang a lantern on it, which is if we're going to do something that someone might have a problem with, you say it so that people don't have a problem with it. If they had just said, hey, Spock, can you use your mind melt on this person? We would have gone, oh, God, they're doing this again. They did this back in A Taste of Armageddon. But because he references it, it turns what's a negative of repeating the same gag into a positive going, oh, cool. They're remembering something from another episode. And then to make it stronger, it doesn't go well because he tries to do exactly the same thing. And then he gets thrown across the room. Totally agree. I mean, that's exactly right. It's like by acknowledging the fact they've done this before, it doesn't feel like they're just repeating the same gag 
but it's also like we like we just pointed out, like just there's that that continuity, that that establishment referencing another episode, uh, which is something I don't think they did again until uh, that which survives, you know, uh, but it's it's just, it's so cool. I remember being, you know, a, a kid and 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 watching this and thinking, oh, wow, that's cool. They're referencing other episodes, uh, not something they did very often. Um, and Kalinda comes in to see what was going on and immediately Kirk lays the old karate chop on the neck on her and she goes down. He grabs the little box from her belt um, and they head outside and immediately they all get frozen again. Literally, Kirk is stopped in his tracks and Hanar, uh, or rather Rojan, uh, is uh, obviously pissed. <laughs> this cannot go unpunished. And he he takes a side. Yeoman Thompson and Lieutenant Che, and you know he's going to do another trick with that little device on his belt. It's cool that this one button on the belt does all this different stuff. Well, it's so interesting. I think that you know this whole trope of freezing people that was so common in the original. You don't really see that in later iterations of Star Trek, and they were so fond of it. I mean, you you see it in Spock's brain, you see it in this episode, you see it in other episodes. And, it, it, you know, it's this whole idea of, of, of people being frozen in place. I mean, it was it, it's very much uh, um, something you associate with the original Star Trek. But I think in the scene that you're talking about right now, it really is uh, interesting the way they invert the audience expectations. Because you think the red shirted security guard is going to be the one who gets crushed. So when it's Julie Cobb, spoiler alert, who's uh, destroyed uh, by the um, Kelvins, it really comes as, as a surprise. But. One of the things I love about this scene so very much is the anguish on Captain Kirk's face that, you know, people joke about these red shirts, but you feel like Captain Kirk really feels deeply any loss of anyone he loses. You know, maybe not in the tag when they're joking around at the end of every episode, <laughs> yeah. but, but he feels the anguish of losing a crew member. That's what makes him part of what makes him such a dynamic you know, as the kids say, iconic character. Yep. It's so remarkable, you know, and, and again, that's Shatner. Yeah. And that's why I, I, I find it so uh, I, I, f- I think people who diminish his performance or, you know, make it into a joke, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, he you have to play science fiction operatic or it, 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 it becomes boring. Or it, you know, we've seen a lot of other shows where people underplay Scott. I hate to say it. Scott Bakula is a good example of that. It was Shatner knew what this was. He commits 100 percent. And that's why there's so much charisma and power and why he is this character that now has been recast twice and why people keep coming back to this character. And that's all Shatner. I think the choice of making it unknown of who's going to die makes this death so much more dramatic. And Mark, as you said, the fact that it's the woman who ends up dying, it's, I think it's one of the more uh, most upsetting deaths of minor characters in the entire original series. I, I agree. completely agree. I agree with both of your points. And no matter how many times I watch by any other name, and we're going on at least 300, <laughs> uh, every time Rojan brings the surviving dodecahedron back to human form, and you see Lieutenant Shea standing there, and you know that it was Thompson who got crushed, it is still a bit of a shock. It is still upsetting. It is still very, very effective. And the look on Kirk's face when he sees Shea and then looks down 
at the crushed dodecahedron and and picks it up with his hands and and is rubbing rubbing the bits in his hand and it's falling through his hands that look of pain on Kirk's face is that is that pain that he felt like in Devil in the Dark when the security guard got uh, killed by the Horda or you know the 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 the, the times that he saw, you know, a couple of the security guards die in the apple. You know, it's that care for each and every one of his crew members. And Mark, absolutely. Well, listen, you know how I feel about Shatner. Uh, Steve feels the exact same way. You know, we're big Shatner fans, big Kirk fans. And at least in the first two seasons of the original series, William Shatner's performance is so very much right on point. And the fact that he was a Shakespearean-trained actor just gave so much depth and gravitas to his performance, which is why Shatner and Kirk are still the GOAT, the greatest of all time. (laughs) You know, it's interesting, too, what this scene does. It establishes the stakes for the rest of the episode. Anyone can die. It says anyone can die. Yep. You know, it's one thing if the red shirt does. Then it's like the apple, you know, not, you know, whatever. But the fact that they killed Julie Cobb you know, it's like, oh, my God, these people aren't messing around. Who's going to be next? And I think that's what's great. I mean, I think that's why it resonates. I think that's what, you know, this may not be one of the greatest episodes of Star Trek ever. But, you know, I think if you were doing a list of uh, great scenes, it definitely would be up there. It's one of those great Star Trek scenes. And just some trivia, uh, Yeoman Thompson is the only female red shirt, or I should say red skirt, to be to be killed on Star Trek. <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh, we come back in Act Two, and first in the log, we hear that Kirk is still upset, and then Spock is beginning to get images that he got from his momentary contact with Kalinda. The most important of which is that he had an image of immense beings with a hundred limbs that resembled tentacles. I always pictured them as Sigmund and the sea monsters because we never <laughs> yeah. we never saw them. And the way he described it, I'm like, oh my god, it's Sigmund and the sea monsters. <laughs> I love the imagination, Mark. <laughs> I'll tell you what's funny. I always forget this description of a hundred of immense beings with tentacles because who I actually always picture is the aliens in Catspaw. Ah, oh, those are, those, yeah. those are the greatest aliens in the history of Star Trek. I know they're pipe pipe cleaners and everything, <laughs> but they were completely alien. Yeah, like that right. was so cool and, and mean, it wasn't like a light like the 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 the, the energy force and day of the dove it wasn't uh you know somebody somebody in a in a suit like right. that was not true you're right mark I, not I, not an energy being not some makeup with weird nose and forehead <laughs> i mean it's just so alien and they did this in, in 66 67 yep i mean it's extraordinary I agree. And this is what they figure out. The reason that they probably took human forms is that these giant creatures with hundreds of tentacles would probably have trouble in the turbo lift, that they need to be human in order to be in the Enterprise. Maybe it's Spock from the animated series. Oh, yeah. Uh, The infinite infinite Vulcan. (laughs) Um, And they go, well, maybe we could use the sick bay medical computers to take out this paralysis projector, which I don't even think any of us think is any kind of an interesting plan, you know, at all. I think this is all fairly weak. uh, And they're trying to figure out how to uh, get up there. And Kirk turns to Spock and says, Mr. Spock, you're sick. I assure you, Captain, I'm in perfect health. No, you're not. Dr. McCoy's given you a thorough examination, and you're ill. In fact, if you don't get to the sick bay, you're going to die. It's a good idea, Jim, but anyone looking at him can tell he's healthy. And then we have Kirk saying another line that should have come from Spock. <laughs> or I should say William Shatner is saying another line that Wonder Nimoy probably had 
But, you know, he said, I'm going to say this lie. Well, and I think this moment, although what happens, I should say what happens is that there's some sort of trance that Vulcans can put them into rest. And Spock goes, I'll take a moment to prepare. And then he stands there for a second and then he almost falls over. And first of all, it's kind of a funny moment. Second of all, dude, why didn't you sit down before you did this thing? And, and, and the third of all, third of all, Steve, how did you feel about this this new discovery about the Vulcans compared to other discoveries like the FSNP, the uh, uh, you know uh, um, uh, the mind melt and the inner eyelid? I mean, wh- where does this where does this new development of Vulcans rank for you? So I would say that it is way better than the. F- second eyelid which is stupid (laughs) and i put it kind of in the middle because i know on shore leave there was some discussion of spock saying i don't get your vocation thing so this kind of connects up to me absolutely yeah yeah um but the other thing i think is that this is exactly the opposite of what just happened that we talked about hanging a lantern on it in order to do the mind meld through the wall because now we're doing the same gag that they've done a lot of pretend to be sick in order to get out of jail. Yep. And this is just like, yeah, here we are again. Well, what's better than a game of Fizbin? <laughs> <laughs> Look, nothing is better than a game of Fizbin. That's also true. <laughs> but he falls down. We call in Haynar. We tell him, "Look, he's going to die." And Haynar says, "Okay, I'll have you beamed aboard." Um, and I do think Shatner does a great job in his performance on the last line. Do what you can with him, though. It manages to convey both the fake sympathy for his sick friend and the intent of try to save the enterprise from right. the captain. This is our best shot. And we're on the enterprise and, and we're in sick bay and uh, McCoy asked for uh, two CCs of Stokeline. And of course, Chapel argues every little mar- medical diagnosis, uh, uh, you know, but at least she became a doctor in, uh, in, in Star Trek, the motion picture, Mark. <laughs> Clearly she's arguing because Stokeling doesn't make any sense at all to give to Spock. It's probably like, you know, give him two cc's of sugar water. Just yeah, like, or a vitamin C. Why are, we, <laughs> yeah, why are we doing this? I do love the moment as they give him the shots that Spock wakes up a little bit too early and McCoy yep. gives him the tiniest head shake to say stay down. Yep. But they've made it back on the Enterprise. We will beam aboard the vessel shortly. I wish you to understand your duties. My duty is to stop you in any way I can. Rojan respects Captain Kirk. He says, you know, we're very similar. Kurt, I respect your devotion to your duty, but I cannot inter- let it interfere with mine. And then Kalinda comes up with what looks like a flower in her hand. They remind her of crystals based on back in her and her world. We call them Sashir. A rose by any other name. And therein lies the title of this episode, one of many Star Trek titles to feature a title taken from Shakespeare. In this case, it comes from Act 2, Scene 2 of Romeo and Juliet. The, the whole quote is, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name. It smells sweet. And the meaning of this line is that although you can change the name of something, the nature of it will remain the same. In this case, the Kelvins have taken on human form, but they are anything but. Well, except that they, they their nature is entirely is going to change. Yeah, in fact, it's true. If, in fact, I would say it's actually the opposite because they're still Kelvins. Their name has remained the same, but their essence has changed because they took on human form. And that is another perfectly observed perspective. I also like Kirk's performance at the moment as he finishes the Shakespeare line, he crushes the flower because you could see his despair at the situation he's in. Yeah, so he, he manages to convey multiple things. Uh, 
we're on the ship. There is a new woman at the helm. Uh, this is Drea, I think her name is. Yes, Drea, who was played by uh, Leslie Dalton. And uh, Sulu was not there because uh, George Decay is still... Where is where is George Decay, Mark Altman? George Decay is still in the jungle shooting the Green Berets with John Wayne. And, you know, I got to tell you, for all George's complaining about how he never got to do anything on the original and Shatner stole all his stuff. Like <laughs> he was gone for most of the best episodes because he took that for cock the movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's like, it's nobody's fault, but his own for, you know, and then he comes back and, you know, it's funny to hear Walter talk about it, how he was, you know, jealous of Walter because Walter got all this good stuff. Because he was there. He was there. He <laughs> you know? Yeah. I yeah. mean, Sulu was supposed to be in Tribbles. I mean, it's like, it's just, it's so funny. It's yeah. so funny. Yes. Yeah, so um, supposed to be in Gamesters or Triskelion, too. Um, yeah. it, it's also funny when you go like, okay, you have the choice to do a movie with one of the biggest stars in the world, or you could be on this TV show that's kind of on the bubble where you only have a few lines every episode. It's kind of a no-brainer that obviously movies are way more important than TV. That's the gig you should take. And of course. Yeah. But, you know, the thing was, he still, you know, he was going to be playing, you know, he wa- he obviously wasn't going to be playing John Wayne's pal. You sure. know, um, so <laughs> right. it was going to be a thankless role uh, as a Japanese actor in a Vietnam War film. But he wasn't getting paid a lot. You know, nobody other than the big three were getting paid real money. You know, look, I understand the choice, but at the same time. You know, he's I, I love George, but he's been dining out on these stories now for years about how, you know, he was underwritten and underused. And but, you know, people forget this was never an ensemble show. It was never supposed to be right. an ensemble show. It was about the big three. It was a star vehicle. And the ensemble, you know, has gotten, you know, certainly more attention and more um, focus in the last, you know, 50 years than anyone could have ever imagined. You know, they become cultural icons and got a lot of other work because they were in Star Trek. But there was never any a sense that, oh, we should give them, you know, all this work or, you know, why didn't they get their episodes? I mean, D barely got episodes. Right. That's true. Um, so on the bridge, we've gone up to warp eight, which Chekhov is shocked about. And then we go even faster. We go to warp 11, at which point Kirk says, I have an officer in sickbay. So he heads down to sickbay. And ask how they're doing. Located the power source, Captain. It's installed in engineering. We're just going to jam it. And then we end up in engineering. And one of the things that I find strange, and I wanted to ask you about, Scott. Yep. That is Captain Kirk in the background of this shot, is it not? That is absolutely. That's William Shatner in the background of the shot. And he's trying to distract the Kelvin, Uh, uh, who I think is Tomar. Tomar, Because if he he turns around, he's going to see Scotty. And uh, Spock up in uh, auxiliary control, trying to get you know get rid of the device. I just want to point out how completely bizarre it is to have your lead actor standing in an out of focus wide shot, way in the background, and not go. And uh, there's got to be a story behind it. Is that they actually had a scene with him uh, talking oh. to Tomar that they that you would never ever do him just in the background you would have him say something to Tomar you'd have a moment that Tomar almost looked over to see Spock and Scotty and he did something to distract him because you make your lead active you would I, you just would never ever do it this way and either they didn't have time to shoot it or the show was too long and they cut it out but there's got to be a story behind it you know what Steve that is a really really great point and my feeling my my uh, you know sort of knee-jerk reaction to that is by this point in the production of Star Trek, Desilu 
had been sold to Paramount Studios. And Paramount really, really tightened the screws on the producers and directors to bring the show in on schedule, which was six days, and under budget, which was around 180, 182,000 per episode. And if you notice, Steve, you know, in the episodes we've been covering up and, you know, after the, uh, the uh, sale to Paramount, the episodes have not gone over schedule. Yeah. They have not gone over budget. So maybe there was a plan to shoot like a point of view of Kirk and Tomar talking, you know, while Kirk looks past his shoulder at, at auxiliary control, and they didn't shoot it because they just ran out of time. This material surrounding the projector is the same as I discovered on the planet. Readings indicate it is impervious to any of our weapons. We cannot penetrate the casing to get to the machine. And then... Scotty is like, well, I guess that's it. But then Spock says, actually, no, we have one other alternative. And Mark Altman, what is that alternative? Well, they're going to blow up the ship, which is another really great part of this episode. Because up until now, I'm like, are you talking about Wink of an Eye or by any other name? It's like, yeah. you know, this this moment where Kirk decides when they go into the galactic barrier, they're going to blow up the ship. I mean, that's a captain. You know, it's like he's like, well, we can't allow them to uh, get back to Andromeda and tell them that we're conquerable. So we're, I'm just going to blow up the ship. And, and it's just, it's, it's so great. Anytime there's those high stakes, even in let that be, be your last battlefield, not a particularly good episode, but the willingness to blow up the ship, use that as a chit. Um, you know, it works in Star Trek three. You know, it's just, it's an old, and, and it really works great here. The whole conversation, the whole setup, the desire not to blow up the ship at the last second. Um, it's great. It's very Kirkian. Well, well, the thing is, is that when they get, when Spock and Scotty get into the turbo lift, with Kirk. The barrier we must penetrate is composed of negative energy. I have opened the control valves to the matter-antimatter nacelles. On your signal, I will flood them with positive energy. What? When we engage the barrier, the ship will explode. The Kelvins will be stopped here. And so will we. This is such a such a well-directed scene. Mm-hmm. Because Kirk's immediate reaction is, are you mad? I can't just... And, and before he can even finish his sentence... The turbo lift has reached the bridge. He can't finish the conversation. He can't try to reason another alternative with Scotty and, and Spock. So ultimately, you know, spoiler alert, you know, Kirk decides not to blow up the Enterprise. And I know we'll get to that in a second. But I think that the Kirk's decision to not blow up the Enterprise in this episode was the reason why he did decide to go that far and do the self-destruct with Beale and Lokai and let that be your last battlefield because he maybe he realized at some point that he should have blown up the Enterprise when he had the chance and by any other name, but he was not going to make that same mistake again and let that be your last battlefield, which is an episode I think I like more than you do, Mark, but I understand why uh, it's sort of been mixed because it's so on the nose. Take your places, gentlemen. We're approaching the barrier. Scotty has his finger on a blinging button and there on the view screen is the galactic barrier, which looks, you know, fantastic, even with the revised visual effects. But in the original effects, they used the stock footage from where no man has gone before. And this is a great end to the second act. You know, Rojan is staring right at the screen and Kirk is just like, like looks shocked and like, oh my God, what do I do? This is a make or break point. And he looks at Rojan, he looks down, then he looks straight ahead and we are at the end of act two. It's a great act out. I mean, again, you know, act outs are, are you, know, you want these mini cliffhangers and it really is a fantastic, this part of the episode is just sensational. The whole conversation, the turbo lift, 
the scene on the bridge and of course when Rojan uh is hip to the deception um is all great mm-hmm. i 100% agree i think it's super dramatic i think it's really powerful i think it really works as the end of act 2 i think it's out of character for kirk i How don't so? believe, because his re- the the Kirk always has it together. He's not easily shocked. He's a very fast thinker. And the fact that he looks so upset by this decision that Spock and Scotty are putting on him and is so shocked, it's that's not how I think he should have been written at this moment. He should have, it should have been done in looks. It should have been done in, I understand what you're saying. And then calculating not, oh my God, I'm so upset. That doesn't seem in character for Kirk to me. I see your point, Steve, but I also that's why I that's why I I think that because of his action or his inaction to pull the trigger in this. That's episode, a good point. That's an interesting point. That by the time he was faced with a similar situation in by uh let that be your last battlefield, he went, uh-uh, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I am not going to let anybody take over the ship. I am the captain of the enterprise. Mark. Yeah, I think that he um yeah, we know how much he loves the Enterprise. Absolutely. And I, I, I think at that point, he's still open. He feels there got to be other alternatives, you know, and, and they've tried to take, uh, disable the trans, not the transmuter, the whatever, the projector. And I, I think he just feels like, oh, my God, you know, maybe it's too soon. And also, you know, the idea didn't come from him since it's broached by Scotty and Spock. It takes him by surprise. But, um, you know, I think he, he really doesn't want to do it. But he's almost willing to do it, and then it's like he I, look. It's a huge decision. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I, you know, and I, I look. It, it probably the right decision was probably to blow up the ship. Probably was right. They got lucky. Yeah, that, that of but, course. But I, uh, he also thinks, okay, it's three hundred years to uh, Andromeda. I'm going to have other attempts, <laughs> other chances to disable the ship. So, you know, or, or, you know, it's not like this is imminent. It's not like the Klingons are taking over the ship or, you know, the stuff, you know, there there will be I will have my moment. So that's a great point, Mark. Like, so Kirk is probably thinking, you know, we're going to have a whole lot of time on our hands to figure out another way to overthrow the Kelvins. Uh, this is this is the least desirable alternative. Maybe Kirk is already thinking ahead, like there's got to be another way. He knows he has time, whereas in like Star Trek three, when he when he pulled the trigger on the Enterprise, which was so upsetting to me <laughs> in 1984. Um, uh, that's a great perspective, too. Um, it's it's not it's not his decision not to blow up the ship that I have an issue with. It's the emotional reaction to the thought of it. That's where my issue. I actually I agree a hundred percent, and I do think it's the we have three hundred more years to find another way to do this. That is the decision. I think it's just the Kirk seems out of control and too emotional in the moment of the idea of this, which is seems out of character to me. But you know, you said it yourself. It's because it wasn't his idea. You know, it's like they say, Shatner wants to be the first one through the door, right? Kirk has to be the one with the idea. So the fact that his, <laughs> they're bringing him this idea that he didn't come up with to destroy the, uh, <laughs> it's like, ah, that's what, and he says, and then Kirk turns to him and says, I got a great idea. We should blow up the ship. Great like, idea, Captain. <laughs> that's hilarious, Mark. <laughs> We're back in Act 3, right into the moment of this tension. Kirk has to make the decision about whether or not to blow up the Enterprise. Scotty is standing, o- sitting over the blinking button. The music is building. And then Kirk says, hold your position. Mark, what's your take on 
on the continuation of this moment as we begin Act 3, because I just think that that when it comes to this kind of dramatic tension and suspense, nothing, no other Star Trek series tops the way they did it in the original series. No, look, obviously I agree with you. I mean, this is a, this is a really, it's what I said earlier about this being a great moment in, you know, and I, I don't want to say a not great episode because that's, not, that's unfair to the episode. It, it, it not a, uh, not one of the classic, you know, episodes. It's a classic moment. It's a great scene. And again, you know, w- you know, when Roshan, because he, he's a worthy adversary for Kirk, yep, I you know, the fact that he was hip to the self-destruction, you know, and, and take steps to make sure it couldn't happen again. You know, that makes you really worry. Like, is this guy going to outthink Captain Kirk? The point. All decks report damage and casualties. Life support systems sustaining on emergency. I'll have a full report on ship status for you in a moment, sir. Your people are most efficient, Captain. So I'm guessing that when the Enterprise went through the galactic barrier this time, I guess there weren't any people on the Enterprise who had higher EMS powers. <laughs> yeah. Nobody, nobody got zapped. Nobody uh, uh, developed those special powers. That well, I like to think the Kelvins reinforced the shield. That's or what I think too. Something because so they weren't affected by the. Uh, the, the, the galactic bearer uh, zapping their esper abilities. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although it would have been helpful. They could have taken out sure. the elephants if they had Gary Mitchell's abilities. That would have been a great turning point. Yep. You know, start the neutralizing operation. What neutralizing operation? And then we have the sequence. And, and Mark, this really goes to your point. I think what they, the upset of the death of the yeoman at the end of act one and and how painful that was makes this sequence of reducing all the bridge clue, including Chekhov and Ahura to these little cubes or dodecahedrons, super, super upsetting. Yeah. They've reduced the entire ship. The whole crew. <laughs> well, it's so interesting too, where those came from, because of course, you know, um, they had to come up with this concept and there were these little uh, decahedrons in, you know, Gene Roddenberry's office that I guess DC had given a uh, Gene. And it was her idea to use that as these objects that they would um, shrink down to, Dr. Shrinker. And so... Um, <laughs> Dr. Shrinker, I get that. <laughs> and it's interesting because you kind of think Captain Kirk as Captain Dunsell, he would be shrunk. What do they need the captain for? They need, you know, uh, people, you know, Scotty. They need certain people. Um, but do they really need the captain? But, of course, you can't reduce the star of your show to a, a cube. <laughs> so so basically, the earlier versions of this outline that Jerome Bixby came up with was much, much darker. And in addition to having crew members basically just sort of killed off in sort of a sort of firing range, uh, there was also a point on the shuttlecraft bay where, where you know, a bunch of crew members – were were sort of sucked out into space when the shuttlecraft oh, wow. bay doors were open. So so that's really dark. But in te- in terms of this episode, uh, you know, Kirk's anguish at seeing uh, his crew suffer is is extended in this episode, unlike any other episode by any other name. Uh, well, first we see Lieutenant Ahura is neutralized. Then we see Chekhov is neutralized, and then we see. Lieutenant Hadley, played by William Blackburn, and uh, Mr. Leslie, who came back from the dead after Obsession, played by Ed <laughs> Paskey, uh, is also neutralized with another female crew member. And just that that hold on Shatner as he as he looks in pain and he looks down at the at the uh, little shapes of the decahedrons that this is his crew. And again, Shatner just 
incredible range in this episode. So great. So great. That's another thing that elevates this episode. There's, you know, Shatner as usual, but he's so good, you know, in, in again, the emotion of it, the feeling, you feel his pain, you know, um, look, and, and that's the thing. And I'm sure you've talked about this, even a mediocre Star Trek, or even a bad episode because of Bill. Yep. And he can elevate even a mediocre episode because he's so interesting to watch that it makes even a really bad episode, you know, watchable. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Turnabout Intruder is nowhere near uh, an episode that that uh, I would say is good, but I enjoy watching it because <laughs> because of him and his performance he is great. He's fantastic at Turnabout. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, guys. That's, that, <laughs> that one might go too far for me. I've watched it. I've been watching it a long time, and we got we're going to get to it. You obey my orders. <laughs> you yeah. obey my orders. <laughs> um, Kirk. But speaking of in this, but in this episode, I 100% agree. He's fantastic. And in the next moment, he's in the corridor, makes a turn, and there in front of him are the remnants of a whole bunch of crew members. And his reaction is really powerful. And I also go, man, wouldn't the Kelvins like pick these things up? They seem sort of in the way here. Well, in the original script, they were going to make the crew slaves. They, right. they didn't have anybody to clean up after them, oh. you know? So, and I don't think they were really, you know, going around with a vacuum cleaner or, I mean, they didn't really care. I mean, they probably didn't care if they stepped on them. These were such an inferior form of life. I don't think they would even give it a second thought do you not agree that this is a better thing for them than exploding the ship as your engineer had thought to do and that's to your point uh steve about how rochan was you know hip to the plan and then kirk walks into the into uh the you know the rec room and he sees uh scotty and mccoy and spock and and uh at this moment, it feels like a season three episode because they're the only ones on. The <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and this is where McCoy starts yelling at Kirk that he should have destroyed the ship, um, which also I feel is a little out of character to me for McCoy. But the moment is great. Scotty tells me that you could have destroyed the ship in the barrier. Why didn't you? I couldn't. If that was our only chance to stop. I didn't think it was. Jim. Bones, that's enough. Jim, I saw them reduce four of my doctors and nurses into those little... They've reduced the whole crew! And at that moment, Tomar enters. Kirk and McCoy have had a lot of heated heated arguments. And McCoy has continually, from day one, uh, on uh, uh, you know the Corpomite Maneuver, uh, on the bridge of the Enterprise, after the way Kirk treated Bailey, all the way into Star Trek The Motion Picture, when McCoy called Kirk out for his treatment of uh, Commander Decker, you know, because both of these guys are very emotional in different ways, Kirk gets very emotional when he like, you know, there's that great conversation between Kirk and McCoy in a private little war where, you know, Kirk slams his fist down and says, all right, doctor. Uh, and it's such great drama. You know, I always it's so interesting to hear that, you know, when Roddenberry was doing the first two seasons of Next Generation, and he didn't want he didn't want any arguing or any any conflict between uh, his his Enterprise crew members. Because that they, that just didn't happen in 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 that time, and it's like it sure happened a lot in the original series, and it made for a great show. Well, that's a whole other conversation about how Gene didn't even understand <laughs> Star Trek by that point, but um, his, his own creation. But uh, you know, I, I like I, I don't disagree with Steve that it is somewhat uh, inappropriate or out of character for McCoy, but it's such a great scene yeah. that I easily forgive it, and it's kind of like the same way in the Tholian web. It makes no sense that Captain Kirk has left this tape for Spock and McCoy. That's perfect for that scenario they're experiencing at that very moment. You know, you'll be at each other's throats, but you have to look to each other. I mean, but it's such a great scene 
and and, and it, that you just forgive um, the fact that it's contrived. Yeah, because yeah. dramatically it's so potent. And of course, you know the callback at the end. Did you ever have time to look at the tape? And it's like, oh no, we didn't have time. There was yeah. so much going on. But um, it's the same thing here. It's like, yeah, maybe you know, Dr. McCoy wouldn't be the one to call Captain Kirk out on that. Although he was always the one who would speak truth to power. Which yeah, absolutely. Was- it's just a weird statement to go, hey, I watched them reduce four of my people, and it was so upsetting. I don't understand why you didn't kill all of us. <laughs> it's kind of a weird <laughs> statement. Good but, point. But, but Tomar's come in, and he, and he sees them eating. He's going, why are you guys doing this? We have these little pills. Before you condemn it, why don't you try it? I believe I will assist me and so bones goes over to the food select selector gets him some brightly super brightly colored star trek food which he starts to eat and again there's talking about can we take out the projector and it's like no but we need that to bring the crew back and as this is happening spock is watching tomar eat and he and- draws kirk's attention to it tomar shouldn't be enjoying the taste of his food quite correct captain but they have taken human form and are therefore having human reaction and this is the epiphany they have that if we can make the kelvins feel more like the humans that they now are maybe they will become uh more aware of humanity what it means to be human to the point where we will not even be kelvins by the time we get back to kelva and that is where they come up with this plan to get on everybody's nerve, basically, except in the course of Kirk and Kalinda. Uh, but this is where the episode takes a very big shift in tone. Huge tonal shift, yeah. Huge tonal shift. But what's great about this tonal shift, Mark and Steve, is that it works. It is, it is remarkable how an episode with such high drama at the end of the second act and the beginning of the third act can take such a humorous tone where it becomes like a Gene Kuhn episode. And this is very much a, 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 a consequence of the rewrite by, by Dorothy Fontana. Um, and, and, it, and it still works because I think if, let's say, Spock's brain had taken a tonal shift by the time they got down to the planet – uh, and met with the Keepers of Pain and Delight, maybe that episode actually would have been better. In this case, the tone does work, and it, that's what makes this episode very unique. Very likable. It's very, it's a very likable, charming episode. And obviously the fact that the um, it's green scene where he gets him drunk has become, so this classic scene has been referenced in um, – not only relics, yep, I believe, but it was you know obviously we referenced it in Free Enterprise at the bar. We have free <laughs> drinks, and we we have the line in Free Enterprise as well. You know, so for an episode which is not considered top tier track, it still has these moments that are very beloved. Yeah, and uh, you know it has of course Captain Kirk now seducing um, Kalinda, making Warren Stevens jealous, but. You know, who's she going to go for? Bill Shatner or Warren Stevens? <laughs> competition there. So I want there's been something I've been thinking about how best to articulate. And this this is what it is, is that there is a distinction between continually exploring a theme multiple times in Star Trek, which I think is great, and repeating the same trope. So the theme of what does it mean to be human and what is the nature of our humanity and how does that connect to the intellect versus desire versus sensation? That's a fantastic theme. And I'm great exploring it multiple times. 
the actual I'm going to make overwhelm someone with their sensations in order to get an advantage is literally exactly what happens in cat's paw. And it's repeating the same thing again. And that and that is something I think, even though I don't like cat's paw and I love it in this, I think it's done way better here. It is still this it's the it's they're not exploring the theme differently. They're doing this plot device way better. Steve, that is an excellent point. That is an excellent point, Steve, because you're right. Uh, Kirk tries to seduce Sylvia by making her feel lust. And that lust does get the better of Sylvia. In this case, you've got multiple Kelvins, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, passion is certainly Kirk's, uh, you know, you know, Kirk is certainly writing what he knows, you know, that is, that is the love and seduction, but you know, the, the, the methods of McCoy and the methods of Scotty and the methods of Spock are, are very different, but you're absolutely right. They are returning to something that was established in Cat's Paw, an episode that uh, I, I like a little more than you, but <laughs> yeah, uh, but that I think it's more effective here because you have it coming from so many different yeah. angles. Yeah, uh, I, I, it's funny. I want to uh, elaborate on what you both said. I, Steve, I totally agree with you that it is exactly the same thing as Cat's Paw. And again, you see that famous memo from DC Fontana to um, – uh, Gene Kuhn saying, you know, look, we are repeating a lot of the same things. Kirk, Kirk talking a computer to death and all this. She was aware of the fact that they were repeating. And, you know, obviously Gene Kuhn was getting super, you know, burnt out. You can only do so many amphetamines and write 24 seconds <laughs> so long yeah. before you get burned out. And he was clearly getting burnt out. So, yes, for sure. It's exactly the same thing. It's a great observation. And you're right. It's done much better here than it does in Cat's Ball. And I think the reason it's better here is what Scott said is that it goes to character. It tells us something yes. about character. Character, uh, Kirk seduces the woman. Spock uses logic. Scotty gets into a drinking contest. So we're learning more about all these characters by the tact that they take. And that's why I think these characters are so rich to us and we we, we know them so well. Even Scotty is a character that really didn't get much to do in the original series. And yet we have such a good sense of who Scotty is. You know, if you told me who these supporting characters are in some of these newer Star Treks, I have no, I literally don't know what their names are, let alone what their personalities are, what their specialty is, what they even do on the ship. Yep. You know, so Scotty, for a guy who didn't get much to do, you know exactly who that guy is. Absolutely. Yeah. And then he became a joke in the movies. But let's look at the TV series where he was a very competent engineer who liked to drink. And, you know, he was kind of Gene. And he was also with Jimmy doing his performance, uh, no no matter what the tone, whether he's in command of the Enterprise or whether it's in comedic moments like Trouble with Tribbles or certainly the one he's about to take uh, in here and by any other name. Jimmy is just such an underrated actor. He was right on point with his performance. Yeah, for sure. Lad, you're going to need something to wash that down with. Have you ever tried any Saurian brandy? And what's so great about that's one line and everybody watching it goes, oh, I know where (laughs) it's going to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in sickbay and McCoy is examining Haynar and says he's a bit anemic and he needs a shot and gives him a shot. And what's funny, he gives him a shot. Haynar has a reaction. And I'm like, look, you've you've taken over the ship and you're just letting a doctor inject something into your body. (laughs) Doesn't seem smart. And then we cut to, I guess, Scotty's quarters and they're taking a big drink and they have in fact killed the bottle of Saurian brandy. 
No more. And this is the only time in the original series, I think, uh, ever that we see Scotty's quarters. Scotty's quarters, yeah. A, I love that he's got suits of armor in his uh, in his quarters. And B, I just can't say enough, and I know I'm not alone, of how much I adore this sequence. It's great. It's great. And you know why he has suits of armor. It's because the art director, set decorator, exactly. goes to, you know, Paramount has this vast uh, warehouse where they yeah. keep from their movies and their TV shows. And they, you know, they're not going to go to rentals. They're not going to, you know, they got to redress a standing set, you know, swing set. And so they're going to pull what they think you know, works, you know, and there's also some rejiggered other Star Trek props in there, but, you know, they say, oh, okay, this works, this works, we'll pull this in, we'll pull this in. Um, but yeah, I, and it's the last time you ever see Scotty's quarters, but what a wonderful, charming, delightful scene. Yes, absolutely. I wish to apologize. I don't understand, Captain. For hitting you, I'm sorry. That is not necessary. You attempted to escape as we would have. Yes, well, I don't usually go around Beating up beautiful women. Actually, yes, he does. Uh, did he just hit Shauna in the face in Games of the Triskelion? <laughs> well, yep. he does make a habit of it. <laughs> yeah, that's know. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I think she plays this really, really well. And I love her reaction because she says, Why not? Well, there are better things for men and women to do. And again, we know where this is going. And <laughs> the first thing he does is kiss her boo-boo on her shoulder. Is that better? Better? Was it intended as a remedy? And he turns her around and says, this is, and we get a big, huge kiss. Is there some significance to this action? Well, among humans, it's uh, meant to express warmth and love. And again, I think her performance is really good because she takes that in and in a very knowing way says, Oh, you are trying to seduce me. Mrs. Robinson. Literally was going to say the exact same thing, Mark. That is what I always hear. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. (laughs) (laughs) And we get into this conversation about humans and love and how much literature is it. And again, I think Shatner's performance on this response is perfect, which is she asks why you create such a mystique around a simple biological function. And he says, we enjoy it. Yeah, but he takes a beat. He's like, why else would we you know, do this? Which actually I think is a deep statement. Why do we do all this? We enjoy it. We enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Belinda, I'm sorry I brought up the whole subject. Do you really regard this touching of the lips as pleasurable? I did. Curious. And this is the turn. Let me try. And she lays a big, huge kiss on him at the exact moment that Rojan enters. Um, and I think this is one of the key differences between this and Cat's Paw, and this is what we see now, is it's not just Kirk improvising with Sylvia. It is the part of a cohesive plan with Spock involved that we're going to see in a moment, that it's all something coming together. It is a plan, not just a move. Totally. Is there some problem, Captain? And again, Shatner's really funny. Not when I came in. Not when I came in. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I mean, I, I can't believe that this is the same episode where, you know, seven minutes ago, uh, you know, they were about to blow up the Enterprise. <laughs> and, and look, that, and that's, I think the tonal shift is what probably uh, rubs certain people the wrong way, you know, who, who don't like comedy in Star Trek. Right. You know, and um, but I think, you know, it, it, it like you said, it really works here. I mean, and for anybody who's seen like those strange new world clips they really tend to lean into the comedy so it'll be interesting to see how the balance is there because you know star trek isn't a comedy it's a drama with light moments right exactly right right 
And some and some fully comedic episodes, I'd say. Right, exactly. Um, exactly. And I think it's really important that after Kirk leaves, Kalinda demonstrates the kiss on Rojan. I think if she didn't do that, which sparks something in him, yep. I don't think the whole plan works. Very odd creatures, these humans. But it's something that stays with him because when, when he's playing three-dimensional chess with Spock... Well, I do not understand this business of pressing with the lips to apologize. Hmm. I believe you're referring to a kiss. And this is where Spock uses logic to get to Rojan. But it is my understanding that such apologies are usually exchanged between people who have some affection for each other. Kalinda has no affection for Captain Kirk. He's already showing emotion. Well, and this is also where I say it's part of a plan because it's not, Spock knows, I think Kirk said to Spock, listen, this is what I'm going to do with Kalinda. We're going to try to make Rojan jealous and put a split between them. I need you to back that up with Rojan. I'm sure they had that conversation. And at that moment, Spock takes a piece in their 3D chess game and says, your game is off, which shows that this is working. Are you disturbed by the incident? Why should I be disturbed? Among humans, I've found the symptoms you are displaying usually indicate jealousy. And the thing that I think is great is it's not just that he is having a jealous reaction, so that emotion is happening, but he's also having a defensive, prideful reaction to being called on being jealous by Spock. I have no reason for such a reaction. Captain Kirk seems to find her quite attractive. Well, of course she is. You are not jealous. No, nor upset. Certainly not. And that's when she, Spock says, checkmate. <laughs> checkmate. Great, great uh, little period uh, to that it's disc. Great. <laughs> Back now our third time on our third bottle. And I just want to point out the prodigious nature of the alcohol consumption by Scotty. I mean, it seems like they've polished off multiple bottles of liquor. That is impressive. And yeah. the fact that Tomar can really hold his liquor at this point still is, is, is also very impressive. But you uh, also got to remember the time at which this was made was like, um, you know, the Mad Men era. And a lot of, you know, showrunners and people had um, bars, mini bars in their office and were accustomed to drinking, you know, during the day. And, sure. You know, obviously, uh, Gene uh, never met a bottle of alcohol he didn't want to drink, and, uh, <laughs> did so often. And uh, so, you know, this was, you know, very, you know, common of the era. I, I, it's funny. I can't really imagine, it, uh, you know, in a show today for a variety of reasons, a character, you know, sort of drinking someone under the table to uh, uh, render them unconscious. Yeah. And Jimmy Doohan plays a fantastic drunk. Great. Grabs a green bottle and says, I found this in a uh, Gunner room, a uh, uh, mirror at me. What is it? Well, it's, um, it's green. I mean, it's an, it's a classic. Iconic it's a classic scene. And yes, they, they did reference it quite a few times as Mark pointed out. So then Rojan tells Kalinda to stay away from Captain Kirk. I will not. You have told me over and over again, humans are no threat to us. We are superior. We'll do as I please. You will do as I say, or I will neutralize your Captain Kirk and all the other humans as well. And Rojan is aware of the rage that he's feeling, which feels alien to him. Well, and Kalinda notices how hard he grabbed her arms. There's that moment of you are both of them know that he's out of control. And I think, by the way, one of the key things is he says, stay away from Captain Kirk. And she goes, did you tell everybody this? And he goes, no, 
that and she hears that that is one of the key i would say errors also of his strategy here because it exposes no this is all about his emotional reaction yeah for sure it's act four and Haynard's getting another shot he's obviously very irritated i think you better stay on him for a few days and then we'll see how you're responding <laughs> i just love the grammatical irritation i see no reason for you to refer to yourself in the plural <laughs> and that's a that's another grammatical uh, correction, like when Spock tells uh, uh, about the uh, double negative. Next, yeah, you were employing a double negative. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is you know one of the key the benefits of watching Star Trek is it'll improve your grammar. Yep, <laughs> um, it'll improve a lot of things. I learned a lot from Star Trek. I, I Scott did. said he he learned uh, the Constitution. You know, we, we the people learned the Constitution from. Uh, well, you didn't learn the whole Constitution. You learned the preamble. Preamble. Uh, the Constitution's uh, pretty. Phil, cool. that, that's pretty. That's pretty great. That's uh, pretty great for a fifth grader. <laughs> you have more. All I have is a bottle of very, very, very old Scotch whiskey. <laughs> he's great i love how sad he is that he has to blow this great bottle yes i was uh, saving you for give me your glass <laughs> and he he to- he's holding a bottle tosses it we hear the glass breaks he's hidden his scotch in a in a suit of armor blows the dust off off it and pours another big glass of booze i can't tell if we're getting anywhere and i haven't seen scotty in hours we haven't seen tomar either Rojan has exhibited symptoms of jealousy. And then in comes Kalinda, who asks to speak with the captain, and Spock immediately goes, Doctor, I'm due for another injection of Stokoline. And I like McCoy's reaction. He's like, huh? Hmm? Spock like hits him by the shoulder. He's like, Stokoline. Like, let's get out of here and leave them alone. <laughs> well, and what I think, and again, it's connecting episodes in ways that they're really not connected. But we talked about in Piece of the Action, Spock's growing ability to do improv and say yes and. And now in this episode, we see he's doing great at it throughout the entire episode. Absolutely. He's learned the art of improv. Say yes to everything. You will pardon us. It, and it's funny. There's the, the moment in uh, Court Martial where why do all of Kirk's uh, old friends look like you? Is that this is another moment of, uh, I, here goes here goes Jim again. He gets to do, I'm giving a guy a shot. And this is what his job is. And then that's why when we get to Star Trek VI, you know, McCoy just says, what is it with you anyway? <laughs> This cultural mystique surrounding the biological function. Yes. Because he knows what she's there for. I've done some supplemental reading on it. And, uh... You have a question? I love just the smirk, I will say, on Kirk's face. Yes. I was wondering, would you please apologize to me again? And then Kirk has that great smile on his face. Haynar comes onto the bridge to complain... <laughs> he is at this point real pissed off and Rojan uh, sends him back to his quarters and then sits down and slaps the chair. Andrea at the helm notices that Rojan is reacting very strangely. Rojan has forbidden me to see you. Yes, that's too bad. Why do you defy him? It's not a question of defiance. We were told to find out everything we could about you. Mm-hmm. But how's the research going? I need some more experiments. Yeah, that's just a great dialogue. <laughs> it really is. And I don't know if I'll put this in. She totally sticks her tongue in his mouth at this moment. Well, that's actually, there may be a reason for that, as I'll, as I'll get to when we wrap this up. Spock comes onto the bridge uh, to do some monitoring of something. And Rojan, and this is where we know we have him, says, have you seen Kirk? 
Spock again playing it perfectly. If you wish, I shall call him to the bridge. No, I was wondering where he was. I left him in the recreation room. And Rojan is totally relieved because... He was alone then. No, Kalinda was with him. She seemed anxious to speak to him. Told her to stay away from him. I think Kirk gave him this line that's coming up. I think Kirk said, if you can, say something like this. It would appear, sir, that you have little control over her. Or perhaps Captain Kirk has more. That's some beautifully manipulative stuff. Yeah, right Spock there. is really pull, pull, pulling the strings here. They have finished the bottle of scotch. And I don't care. I don't care how much of a drinker you are to finish four full bottles of booze with two people. That is that is a lot. That's impressive. I couldn't yeah. finish like one glass because I'm such a lightweight. I am not a lightweight and I couldn't do remotely anything like this. Very interesting. But I feel rather strange. And then the most ridiculous sort of passes out. <laughs> I don't know if that was the director who's, you know, Mark Daniels said, you're an alien, so do something. But I, I, I actually think it's just kind of bizarre. <laughs> and Scotty hugging that bottle of scotch. We did it, you and me. Put him right under the table. I had, a, I had a teacher when I was in uh, theater school who talked about how to play drunk. And one of the things he said, which I could totally see Jimmy doing do, is that gravity keeps shifting on you. So sometimes you're walking uphill and then immediately you're walking downhill and then the gravity shifts to the side. So you're being pulled over to this. You could totally see him do all of this stuff. And I love the pride and that he, you know, stands up straight and goes, OK, I'll take this to the captain walks straight to the door the door opens slowly passes out <laughs> it's the slow slide down that wall that he does so perfectly and all i could think about watching this time was man that's a hangover tomorrow i mean <laughs> yep. that is a real real hangover kalinda i told you to avoid this human i did not wish to i am your commander and i love how kirk does this because he puts his arm over in a very possessive way that's not enough Rojan. Almost as if he's saying, we are in love. We're a couple now, which, of course, he doesn't feel he's that just way. just doing that to agitate yeah. Rojan even further. Really, like, tip him over so that uh, Rojan just gives in to the, the jealousy and the rage yeah. that he's feeling. You did this to her. Corrupted her. Turned her away if from If you me. can't keep her, that's not my problem. And Rojan pulls him away, and Kirk slaps him in the face. Twice. Twice. And Rojan loses it. Tosses Kirk over the over the table. Yes, there are a bunch of stuntmen in this sequence. Want to use a paralyzer? He's trying to reason with Rojan while he's fighting with him. You're jealous. You're trying to kill me with your bare hands. And then he throws him into the arms of Spock and McCoy. I'm stimulating him. And Spock and McCoy just kind of push him right back into the fight and stand there and watch. And the the look on McCoy's face, especially, he's so amused. And he gets Rojan in essentially a rear naked choke. And I think, Scott, you said that Shatner is taking judo at this time. So it's actually a pretty good hold he's yeah. got on him. And I love the argument, which is like the argument is basically these bodies are making you human. And imagine what's going to happen to your descendants 300 years from now. They're not going to be Kelvin at all. They're going to be fully human. I think it's a fantastic argument. And he's um, making it during a fight. Your mission is to find new worlds for your people to live in. You can still do that. We can bring this problem to the Federation. Which, of course, is what he said, you know, back in Act One. And Rojan stops fighting. 
And the music, there's a little music hit, and he says, You would really do that? You would extend welcome to invaders? No, but we would welcome friends. Which is a classic, classic Star Trek sort of message, which I, which I really do like thematically. It's great, and it's a great line, and it's so Kirk. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's redolent of things like we've seen in a, a, a arena or something, but you can't emphasize this point enough, you know, that, that, that enemies don't have to be enemies forever and that uh, you, you can, you know, and you don't hold grudges and bring them into the fold. And uh, it's a wonderful, you know, button for the episode. But if we retain this forum... Where could we find a place? And I'm going like, well, why do you have to maintain these forms? That's the one thing that doesn't make sense to me. Well, if maybe the plan- maybe they're already at the point where it's too late for them to switch mm. back because they're so human. Well, and they've, they've figured out that they enjoy some of this stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. Seems to me that little planet you were on is kind of nice. And then Rojan asked Kalinda if she wants to stay with the captain. He's most interesting, but I wish to go with you. I believe I owe you an apology. And then Rojan gets a big, huge kiss. This culture, by the way, that they're going to develop on this planet is going to have a lot more kissing, I think. Yeah, they're going to have fun, I think. Yeah. (laughs) And Rojan turns the Enterprise back over to Kirk, who calls up to the bridge and says, Turn the ship around. We're going home. That brings us to the end of By Any Other Name. And uh, some players here had had something to say about By Any Other Name. Leslie Dalton said Warren Stevens was a very, very nice person. He was a doll. He was a lovely guy. I was just impressed generally by the kind people on that show. Bill Shatner was charming and fun. Nimoy was a marvelous gentleman, and so was DeForest Kelly. Lovely people. Barbara Boucher, who played Kalinda, and I I, uh, hinted at this earlier in the show, said, I remember thinking of Star Trek as being a successful show. I suppose that's why I tried out for the part. William Shatner is my only memory. I had a big crush on him, and we went out a few times. Oh, oh there you go. So there you go. Yeah. And Stuart Moss was also smitten with Barbara. She did not go out. He did not go out with Shatner, though. <laughs> Stuart Moss said, my only frustration on that show was striking out with Barbara Boucher. After a delightful week in her company, I asked her out to dinner. She just stared at me for a moment, smiled, and answered, but for what purpose? You're an attractive man, but what can you do for me? Wow. Wow. That's very Kalinda, by the way, for her to say that. <laughs> yeah, she, she was very much in character. She was very much in character. And then Jerome Bixby, who wrote the episode with Dorothy Fontana, said, it came out kind of lightweight. The drinking contest was a funny, funny bit. When he collapsed, I thought it was the best part of the story. So- Mark, my question for you is, after this deep dive conversation, like, how do you feel? Uh, have you thought uh, maybe a little differently about by any other name? Or does your assessment of this episode still stand? No, I feel exactly the same way I felt when we started this conversation. <laughs> it's a delightful, charming second tier episode that I enjoy watching. You know, I always look and, 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 and how, you know, how did I feel on WPIX Channel 11 in New York? If I, you know, when it came on, you know, if I saw, you know, didn't know what episode was coming, hadn't gotten TV Guide that week, turned on the TV and uh, saw the planet at the, I'd be like, oh, this is great. I would be very happy to see that this episode was on that night and I would watch it. You know, if I turned on the Children Shall Lead or, uh, you know, a couple other episodes, I wouldn't have been as excited. 
but I was always excited by any other name came up. So, you know, came up in the rotation. So that to me is a, is a good episode. When I was watching this episode on WPHL channel 17 in Philadelphia, I felt the exact same way. Uh, I have a vivid memory of uh, being at my grandmother's and she lived in an apartment building, had a nice pool. uh, And uh, we were, I was about to go, uh, out and play in the pool, but Star Trek was on, and by any other name was the episode. And I told my grandmother, "I'll be down in an hour." <laughs> I, I don't know how you remember these things. I have a good memory, but that kind of memory just blows my mind. Um, so I feel exactly, I think, the way both of you do. I totally like the episode. I enjoy watching it. It's not a top episode in any way. It's not a bottom episode. But here's what I think. Here's what I've learned from this conversation is I think this episode is a perfect episode to demonstrate what works and what doesn't work in Star Trek. You know, because we see when they're reusing things and it kind of works and when they're reusing things and it doesn't, we see the character moments that really work. We see the logic moments sometimes that don't quite work. Like it really uh, is demonstrates how Star Trek succeeds. And I, and I think that that's what makes watching it, it both enjoyable because I like the episode, but also instructive in its way. Like I said, I've always loved this episode and, and, you know, this conversation, you know, I mean, you know, Mark, I've been, uh, I love talking with you about Star Trek. We've done it so many times after the last, you know, almost 30 years, uh, you know, but to really get into a specific episode like this and, and to see the ways uh, that we brought up how th- uh, thematically it is tied to what came before and what became after, I, I just think it's, you, you would swear that in some way, the writers and producers really had a plan to make it a serialized show all along, which is how well it works when you really look at it with serialized eyes. And, uh, you know, I want to thank uh, Mark Altman. I just want to thank you, my good friend. Thank you so very, very much uh, for joining us on Enterprise Incidents. And- dun, 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 dun. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that, and- that was the Enterprise Incident. And, and that's right that, uh, you know, that's coming up, but, um, for everyone listening, make sure you read Mark's two volume series, the 50 year mission volume one is on the original series and the original series movies. I have read that book four times over the years. And I remember when I read an advanced copy of that, uh, I was in, uh, Cabo San Lucas, uh, for the Christmas holiday that year. <laughs> and I should have, my attention should have been focused elsewhere, but I could not put that book down. And of course, you can listen to Mark and his co host, Darren Doctorman, who worked on the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture every week on the must listen to Star Trek podcast, Inglorious Trexperts. If you are not, Listening to these Trexperts, you are clearly missing out on just a, such an entertaining, intelligent, and provocative podcast series. So, Mark, thank you again so very much. Where can people follow you on social media? Well, they can follow me on Twitter at Mark A. Altman or on Instagram at Mark A. Altman. Well, that's very easy. You can follow there me. There you on- go. Just remember Mark A. Altman. Yeah, Mark A. Altman. There you go. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And, Steve, how about you? Um, well, you can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. I want to echo what you said about the 50 year mission in particular. I listen to the audiobook version of it. That's really, really good. So I highly recommend that if you're an audiobooks uh, person and other than the rampant mispronunciations, it's great. That's true. Yeah, that, that's true. But I accept that. Um, the, uh, 
the other thing I wanted to mention is that people have asked before how they can support enterprise incidents. And the best way to do it is, is you can go to Anchor, and which is who hosts our podcast. And we'll have a link right in the description of the show where you can support the show by subscribing. And you could do it for as little as 99 cents a month. And that 99 cents a month makes a huge difference. So we really, really appreciate any support you can give to help us keep this show going. And you can also be sure to share Enterprise Incidents on all your social media platforms so other Trek fans, big, small, old, and new, can discover Enterprise Incidents and, uh, and, and really get into you know the original series, which is the greatest Star Trek of them all. So say we all. So say we all. <laughs> Absolutely. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook. You can just search for Enterprise Incidents. You can follow us on Twitter, Enter Incidents, on Instagram, at Enterprise Incidents. Scott. Where is the crew of the Enterprise going next? Uh, have no fear. Sargon is here because in the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, we are covering Return to Tomorrow. We will be joined again for the fifth time by director Ralph Sinetsky for our deep dive of Return to Tomorrow. So please join us on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. And you could say risk is your business risk is our business that is what that starship is all about that is why we are aboard her so until then keep going boldly